and turn to John chapter 6. Today we'll be looking at a rather lengthy discourse called the Bread of Life Discourse, where Jesus is, is teaching, trying to teach, the people that have witnessed and, and even eaten that bread that he miraculously produced and when he fed the 5,000. This is the teaching that follows up to that. We'll start at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me not because you saw the miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. And they asked him, what must we do to do the work God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is the Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, now from now on, give us this bread. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do the will, my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up in the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son will believe in him, and believe in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know, how can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. 
Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father enabled him. From this time onward, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? He asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is the devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, through though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. Father, this is such a glorious text, and I pray that you will speak through me to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. The text we're looking at today is really a continuation or a third part of a discourse that we've been studying these last three weeks. It starts at the beginning of the chapter in, in verse 1 where, where Jesus feeds the 5,000 or really as we looked at it, it probably was more like 15,000 feeding all those people miraculously from five loaves and two fish. Jesus then, as we saw, rescued his disciples from a terrible storm on, on the Sea of Galilee by walking out to them on the water. And when he got into the boat, they immediately made it to shore. Well, this is the next day. And some people who had seen Jesus had been there and probably ate some of that bread and, and fish have, have followed him over to Capernaum. And they, they're in search of him. And they find him in verse 25 here. And Jesus wastes no time in confronting their hearts. This was Jesus' opportunity to teach on the miracle of yesterday. Look at verse 26 with me. They come over and are asking, how would you get here? 
And he says, I tell you the truth, you're not looking for me because you saw the miraculous signs, but because you ate and had your fill. You're not looking for me because of the miracle. You're not understanding the miracle and pursuing me because you know the meaning of the miracle. You're pursuing me out of physical needs, what you want. You're here because of the physical, not the spiritual. And he admonishes them. He goes on in verse 27, and he says, Listen, don't, don't work for food that spoils, but food that endures for eternal life. In other words, don't focus so much on the physical. Yes, your stomach is full. Yes, your appetite was satisfied. But there's something more, there's something more meaningful there that you're missing. And so they ask, what must we do to do the work that God requires? They keyed in on that word work, as our hearts always do. You know, Pastor, tell me the seven things I need to do to have a happy marriage. Give me the work. What must I do? Give me the, the four principles of freeing myself from, from the grips of money. What must I do? Our hearts are always seeking the do's. And that's what they're asking. But Jesus answered them in verse 29. He says this. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. He's saying, listen, guys, it's not about achieving. It's about believing. It's not about achieving. It's about receiving. It's not about achieving. You can't achieve this. There's no answer for what must you do? Just believe in me. And to that, the people say, okay, well, he's saying that he, he's sent from God. Well, well, show us. Give us a miracle. Right? That's what they say. Okay, if, you, if, if you're saying all this, show us. Prove it to us. So interesting. I mean, it's so obvious to us, isn't it? <laughs> Here they're asking for a miracle, and yesterday they saw this amazing miracle of the feeding of 5,000. To us, we go, are you kidding me? They're asking for a miracle when, when yesterday they, they were collecting baskets full of miracle? And they're saying that is not enough. By the way, that's the nature of miracles. That's the nature of signs if you're, if you're a Christian that looks for signs. That's really the nature. That's, that's, that's the cycle that you are in. You'll always be looking for more signs. And you'll always be continually forgetting what God has shown you. Sign-seeking simply does not lead to solid Christian faith. If you're here and you're a sign seeker, if that's a big part of your approach to the Christian faith, I want you to hear this. It'll never be enough. He'll never give you a sign where you go, ah, now I have more faith. Now I have the faith I need. You'll never get there. It will never completely satisfy you just like the manna that this whole miracle is based on, the manna never satisfied them, did it? 
As a matter of fact, after probably a couple months, I'm, I'm, this is conjecture. After a couple months in the wilderness of this miraculous manna appearing, I bet you that they just didn't even think about it anymore. They went out, they, they picked up their omer, they crushed it, they made their bread, they ate. Oh, the next morning they just go out. That's the nature of miracles. That's the nature. If you focus so much on the signs and wonders and miracles, if that's how you focus in your Christian walk, it'll never be enough. It's like drinking, being thirsty and drinking seawater. That's the loop you get into. It creates thirst for more. It never satisfies. And that's not only true when we're seeking miracles or some kind of signs and wonders from God. It's also true when we seek satisfaction from anything in this life. It's that same death loop. And by the way, we all do. We all seek satisfaction from something else in this life besides the Lord. We're all looking for something else to satisfy us. However much we think the physical will satisfy, it just doesn't. Not popularity, not power, not relationships, or making it to retirement, or money, or mammon or sex, or self-righteousness, or ease of life, or anything else. All of these let you down. All of these, you get to it, and you want more. They leave you thirsting. They leave you hungering for more. Except for Jesus. And that is the point of this passage. He meets our deepest need. Jesus is the only one who really satisfies. That's what he means when he says, I am the bread of life. He used that metaphor because that, that was the most basic thing a, a family or a person needed to survive for life. He is saying to these people, I am the bread of life. I will satisfy you deeply, that deep need, the most basic need, and I'll never leave you wanting more. Think about it. Think about the truth of that. Pick anything in your life. Pick anything in our, in our lives, our jobs. A lot of people seek total satisfaction in their jobs and they focus in on their jobs and jobs let you down. Always do. You know, whether it's through not having the right boss or not having the right uh, promotion or, or maybe getting laid off or even fired. I mean, these things always let you down. Think of money. No matter how much money you have, There's always that in the back of your mind and maybe in the front of your mind going, it's not enough. It's not enough. John D. Rockefeller, the wealthiest man that ever lived, ever lived. They asked him, how much is enough, John? And you probably have heard his answer. Just a little bit more. He was worth worth 
one-thirty-fourth of the gross national product of America at the time. Just a little more. I just want a little more. It doesn't satisfy. Think of retirement. Once you go on that dream vacation, what do you start doing? What's the next dream vacation? The bucket list? Once you complete the bucket list? Well, it's amazing how there's another bucket with another list. Popularity, teens. It's never going to satisfy. There's always going to be another group that you want to be a part of that you can't be a part of. You make it in high school, you go to college, and then there's all these new other groups, and you go, I want to be with that and know that one. And then you get to you go to the, the workforce, and it's the same. You know, one of the shocking realities that I had to come to terms with is I hated the cliques and the popularity stuff in high school and college. I hated it. I always rejected it, and I thought, once I get to the workforce, everybody will be mature. Nothing in this life will ever fully satisfy you. Woody Allen turned a wonderful phrase comically, and he said this. He said, I would never want to be a member of a country club that would have me. That's the inescapable loop, isn't it? That's really true. The reason it's so scarily funny is he puts his finger right on the nerve. That's so true. The inescapable loop that life offers you is never being satisfied, never never making it, never completely getting there. And when you get there, there's emptiness, strange emptiness. But Jesus offers deep satisfaction that nothing else will give you. I am the bread of life. Your deepest need is life security. Your deepest need is life security. Jesus saying is, I'm the only person that can give you true life insurance. I mean, we buy this life insurance. But what does it really do? It doesn't insure our life at all. Jesus is saying, I will give you true life insurance. I mean, he says it over and over again, but you can just look to verse 40 and see what he says there. He says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to me, uh, everyone looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's the guarantee. There's the life insurance. And there's the security, the satisfaction that we're all deeply pursuing in anything and everything else. I mean, l- l- let me put this in, in maybe a little perspective for you. If, if you've ever gone through a very traumatic point in life, or, or maybe some of you out here, and I know some of you out here, have gone to the brink of death, had, had you know, you, you might die, doesn't that bring a certain amount of crystal clarity? When your life is on the chopping block, there's clarity there. Everything else fades away, doesn't it? I mean, who cares how much I have in my 401k? I, couldn't ma- I might not make it till tomorrow. Who cares? 
if I get that promotion. I'm having trouble just getting to the next day. There's this clarity that comes. The things that are so important become trivial. The things you work so hard for are not so important anymore. The things that you look for for deep satisfaction, your job, money, comfort, ease, power, retirement, travel, free time, they all lose their luster. Because the most basic thing is in jeopardy, your life. I had a friend, a childhood friend, Bob Tedeschi, who after college he went backpacking in Europe alone for for the summer before he took a job. Took the job at, um, it wasn't Fidelity, but it was another one of those investment firms. But he got a job, so he took the summer before to go backpacking. And he came back, and he came to me, and he wanted to know, he came to our family, because he, he, he didn't come from a family of faith, and, and he spent tons of time in our family, and he knew that we were believers. And he made a beeline after he came back to our, our family, and he wanted to hear about this Jesus. And he wanted to hear, as we found out, because he had a near-death experience in Europe. He was climbing in the Swiss Alps, and he got stranded overnight on a ledge. And he thought he was going to die. He told us, he said, I thought that was it. Here I am. Nobody knows I'm up here. I'm stranded. I can't get out. And it brought clarity to his life. Everything else faded. It wasn't so important with the job he had waiting for him in New York City. I need to know about the security that I have in, of, of life. I know some of you out there have had that experience and have had that crystallization point. And those of you who haven't had that experience, haven't had that, that point in your life where everything else fades away, learn from the people that do. And it's so interesting, even, even that fades away, doesn't it? Once we get some distance in time from it, the world starts closing in again, doesn't it? And those things that we thought, I don't care about that because Jesus is the most important thing. That starts to fade. We seek satisfaction in things other than Jesus other than the bread of life. And the admonishment that we need to hear is, don't work for food that will spoil, but food that endures to eternal life. That's what Jesus is talking to us about. Don't look, don't spend yourself, don't kill yourself in those things. doesn't mean chuck it all together, but don't find your meaning, your purpose, your value, your satisfaction in those things. Find them in me. Because you'll never find anything that satisfies your deepest need of life. He says, focus on me. Jesus says, find your meaning and purpose and value in me. Focus on me. Feed on me was the metaphor that he used over and over again there, right? That's the metaphor that, that he extends in verses 53 to 58, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh and drink my blood. I mean, he's taking this metaphor into hyperbole in order for us to get it. 
Unless you do that, you have no life. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. He's pointing to himself throughout this. And, and I kind of did it from a, uh, in a gesture point. I don't know if he gestured, but when he was saying, I am the bread of life, I could potentially see him doing this in front of the Jews. Me, feed on me. Ingest me, have me inside of you, believe in me. That's what he's saying. You need, if you want eternal life, you have to trust in me. Verse 51, he says, This bread is my flesh, and I can see him just pointing to himself, which I will give for the life of this world. There's the gospel, guys. This is my flesh that I will give for the life of this world. This world, you won't find life in anything that you pursue. This is why he came. To fulfill the law, to live that perfect life. He came to live the life that we were actually created to live. In joyful obedience to his Father in heaven. And he earned eternal life. He earned eternal life. What work can we do? We can't do any work. Jesus did the work. That's why he says that your work is to believe in me. Yet he, being totally innocent, stood accused. You know, we're coming up on Easter early this year, and that should be a focus of our meditation, he stood accused. He allowed himself to be called guilty, guilty, guilty so that we could be declared innocent, 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 innocent. He he willingly gave his flesh. And the work that we must do is believe. The work he did was obedience. Our work is trust. His work was suffering. Our work is belief. His work is giving his flesh. Our work is eating it, trusting Jesus. And what's absolutely fascinating and absolutely counterintuitive is that we cannot do that work. What I just said, our work is to believe, our work is to, to trust, our work is to, to, to see Jesus for who he is and believe in him. You know what? Not one person that has ever lived is capable of doing that work. Look at verse 60. On hearing what Jesus said, Eat my flesh, drink my blood, trust in me. I will get you, give you eternal life. They said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And the answer is, no one. No one can accept it. That's the shocking reality. The, the truth of scripture is that we need his help. We need to be enabled to see who Jesus is. No one has the ability to choose Christ. Let me say that again. 
No one has the ability to choose Christ. No one has the ability to understand the gospel. No one who has ever lived has heard the gospel and said, of course, that's it. Jesus takes on my guilt and I get his reward. Ah, makes perfect sense. Man living 2,000 years ago, 4,000 miles away, affects me. Ah, of course. I mean, who couldn't see that? You can't. No one who's ever lived hears that and says, oh, yes. Jesus is going to satisfy me finally and perfectly. The hard truth is that the reaction of these Jews is our reaction too. Trusting in Jesus' work, metaphorically eating his flesh and drinking his blood, is a hard teaching and impossible to believe. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, you know, the, the gospel is foolishness to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews. And it's the same today. We stumble over a dying Savior. We look to the cross and its atonement and we say, how can, that, how can I gain that righteousness? That's foolish. That's ridiculous unless, verse 44, verse 65, Unless the Father draws you. Unless the Father draws you. Unless you're enabled. You can't understand the gospel. That's why in Ephesians 2 it says, Faith is a gift. Thank you very much. We, don't even, we can't even muster up faith to believe. Just look at the evidence in, in our text. They're totally blind to the meaning of the feeding of the 5,000. Totally blind. <laughs> you know, they're asking for another miracle. They don't even remember it. And then they grumble and say, hey, who, who, you're saying you came down from heaven? Aren't you Joseph's son? And then they start arguing about eating, and, eating his flesh in verse 52, trusting Christ. And finally... In verse 60 and 66, they say, we just don't believe it. And it says, many turned away and no longer followed him. Mark Johnson, in his commentary, says, even when people are confronted head-on with God's truth and the offer of God's grace, they neither recognize it nor are they able in themselves to respond to it. That's the elephant in the room in all the Gospels, isn't it? Jesus here is fulfilling prophecies, he's healing people, he's, he's doing all these miracles, and people predominantly don't get it, do they? Nicodemus, the teacher, who should get it. We read about him a couple months ago. You're a teacher of Israel and you don't get this? You have to be born again? You have to be recreated spiritually? You have to be given life, Ephesians 2? The Pharisees certainly don't get it. The Sadducees, as we heard last week from Brooks, certainly didn't get it. Rich young ruler didn't get it. Even the twelve disciples don't get it. They seem to go back and forth, don't they? You know, Peter makes this confession, then we're going to read about Peter denying, confession, denying. They don't get it. Without the Father's enabling power, without the Father drawing them, Jesus can never be seen for who he is. 
We just went through the Christmas season, and there's that great Christmas classic, A Christmas Story. Does everybody know that? Uh, with Ralphie and the BB gun, right? The shoot your eye out, kid. There's that great story, and he, Ralphie thinks that the BB gun is it. Yeah, if, I, if he gets the BB gun, that's the I Ching of life. That, that'll give me satisfaction. If I just get the Red Rider BB gun, and the movie just centers around that, and you, if you've seen the movie, you know that Christmas comes. No Red Rider BB gun, right? There's that wonderful scene at the, at, you know, where the presents are all unwrapped and there's paper everywhere and the camera's panning in the living room. And you see his little brother asleep there clutching one of the toys. And, and it, the mother and father are finally sitting after it's all said and done on the couch and they're sipping coffee. And Ralphie's kind of playing with one of his toys and, and, if you remember, the father motions to him, come on over here. And Ralphie comes next to his father. And his father points, right? Points into the corner. And Ralphie goes over to a present he had never seen. And he unwraps it. And it's the Red Rider BB gun. It's a beautiful story. He gets the best gift, the gift... Beyond all gifts, the BB gun. And, and guys, that's exactly what God does with us. We, we can't understand the gospel by ourselves. We can't intellectually work through it and go, ah. God, he pulls us to himself. And then he says, look, you're missing the most satisfying gift. It's over there. It's my son. That's what God does for us. Because we can't see Jesus and understand the gospel unless the Father draws us. And then there's verse 67. Verse 67 says, Jesus turned to the twelve, Do you want to leave too? What about you? The Gospels also call for an honest response to the gift. Mark Johnson again says, Repeatedly in John's record, Jesus weaves together an emphasis on both the necessity of God's sovereignty in in the saving activity and the emphasis on the necessity of a response of faith. And it never dilutes one in favor of the other. This is the tension of verses 60 to 71 in our text. We see there two responses, don't we? One of disbelief, in one of belief. There's, this is too hard. Who can accept it? And then there's Peter saying, who else has the words of life? He gets it. Faith. This is the tension that we have to keep, brothers and sisters. This is the tension that we have to keep in Scripture. Is it God's sovereignty? 
that gives us new life? Absolutely. Do we need to respond to that gift? Absolutely. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. God draws, man responds. God elects, man chooses. I guess it was uh, the great theologian Kuiper, the Dutch theologian, who said it best and who explained that tension best when he was at Calvin Seminary and he was asked about God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And he said this. He said, I liken them to two ropes going through two holes in the ceiling and over a pulley above. If I wish to support myself by them, I must cling to both ropes. If I cling to one and not the other, I go down. I read the many teachings of the Bible regarding God's election, predestination, his chosen, and so on. I also read many teachings regarding whosoever may come and urging people to exercise their responsibility as human beings. These seeming contradictions cannot be reconciled by our puny human minds. With childlike faith, I cling to both ropes, fully confident that in eternity I will see that both strands are part of the same rope. So we cling to those two ropes in our text. We're left with the question the gospel always puts to our hearts in those verses. Do you want to leave or do you want to stay? Does this offend you? Does the gospel offend you? If so, if the gospel offends you, we're about to enter into the Lord's Supper. If the gospel offends you, if you say no, it's not because of what Jesus did for me. It's what I do to earn my own righteousness. If that's your understanding of the gospel, I would ask you to refrain from these elements. Because the gospel is all about your inability and God's ability. What you cannot do and what Christ did do for you. What you will not go through, pain, suffering, punishment, and death, and what what he went through, pain, suffering, punishment, and death. That's that's the wonderful transaction on the cross. He offers you his righteousness, and he takes all of your consequence. If you understand that gospel, and you have eaten his flesh, and you have had a drink of his blood, meaning you believe that. This is your table. And I would ask you to come up and be thinking about what Christ has done for you as you dip that bread into that blood red juice. Jesus said in 1 Corinthians 11, do this in remembrance. Remember my sacrifice for you. Reaffirm your faith in Jesus Christ. That's another thing you can do as you come up. Reaffirm your trust in Jesus Christ.
Let's take a moment and pray before we take the elements, and then you'll be dismissed from this side going back around and up.